Hello and welcome to Happy Place. I'm Fern Cotton and today we've got a great episode for you. Well, they're all great, but this one is super special because it's with author and screenwriter Juno Dawson. There was something about me that knew I was a girl and I like that and I celebrate it. I couldn't celebrate it for a really long time. You know, I went 28 years without being to celebrate who I was kind of did through my fandom of the Spice Girls. That was as close <laughs> as I got. We cover some big, big subjects in this chat. Have a look at the show notes for this episode for any triggers. But trust me when I say you'll really get to know and love Juno just as much as I do. She's inspiring for so many reasons and I can't wait for you to meet her. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. And now here's the show. So today we're off to meet Juno Dawson, a best-selling author of young adult fiction, who until a few years ago went under the name James Dawson and has slowly made the transition from he to she. I'm so excited to speak to Juno for lots of reasons, not least the fact that gender is such a lively issue at the moment and it can often feel difficult to know what to say. So my hope is that we can learn a bit more about Juno's personal journey of self-discovery and how we can apply that to our own lives and the way we think about who we are. My earliest, earliest memories are about girls. I was very, very aware that there was a fundamental difference between what I was being told I was and what I was seeing particularly in the media and I think the media was really important for me and so you know I was born in sort of the low mid to right 80s and <laughs> so it was kind of like cartoons like He-Man and She-Ra and Care Bears yeah. and I couldn't even necessarily tell you what the difference between masculine and feminine was I was draw it was very magnetic and the ones that really stand out was like Sheila in Dungeons and Dragons, where I just knew I was going to be Sheila. And when we played on the street, which was like this sort of little cul-de-sac of terraces near Bradford, I was always Sheila and I would put my hood up and turn invisible, obviously. <laughs> and it was just never a question in my mind. There was never a minute of doubt. You know, as soon as I knew there was a difference between boys and girls, I knew I was a girl. And it's not even like you were trying to... I guess, figure that out or articulate it. It was a feeling and it was mm. an intuitive feeling that there was a difference and you were drawn to that. It's strange, isn't it? Because I watch this in my nieces who I think are 10 and 7 now. I should know that really. And it's so interesting to see them make the preferences they make and make mm. the choices they make. And I think it comes from like a very, very sort of primal fundamental place, which is, 
I remember being in toy shops and being so drawn to My Little Ponies and Girls World Styling Heads and Barbies. And I couldn't tell you what it was about them. You know, I certainly wasn't thinking of political correctness and, oh my gosh, body image, because I was, what, three or four. But I just knew those were the things I wanted. And initially, because I was an infant, I was allowed them. But as I grew a bit older and it became people start to take those things away from me. And of course, in, in the book, I wrote a lot about having my Penelope pit stop, who was just a bedraggled Barbie doll. I had my Penelope pit stop taken away from me and I was devastated. So when you had those moments where you did have toys removed and mm. and you realised that those supposedly sort of feminine things that you were drawn to didn't correlate with what you saw in the mirror or what you were being told, how did that make you feel? And, and, and how did you sort of deal with that at such a young age? I do remember being, I think the word now that we would use on the internet is shamed. Mm. I was sort of repeatedly shamed in lots of ways, both quite explicitly in that I was told to, you know, stop running like a girl, stop skipping like a girl, stop speaking like a girl. But then in also lots of different ways as well. So kind of, you know, like having the toys taken off, asking for things for Christmas, but then actually being given sort of more gender appropriate toys kind of. So in lots of different ways, I was being told that I was getting it wrong. I think that sort of manifested more as I entered sort of puberty and adulthood, which is where you, I think you have more of a sensation of feeling bad about yourself. The worst years looking back, and this is really with hindsight, at the time I thought everything that I was going through was quite standard because you do, because you've only ever lived as yourself. Exactly. So I think 13, 14, 15 were the really bad years and it manifested as really horrific anxiety. Mm. And really for those years, I just didn't really leave the house. I was just kind of in my room watching Doctor Who on VHS, which is great. (laughs) And actually was quite satisfied doing that. But it wasn't, living a full life in the way that my friends were. So so strangely, you know, I was incredibly sheltered. You know, I didn't really blossom until, you know, I hit sort of 18, 19 and I'd left home and had found a new group of friends as well who kind of celebrated the fact that we were all misfits. And I think I was definitely about 17 or 18 before I learned it could it can be a wonderful thing to be different and that actually going against the grain is something you should actually play with rather than deny. And of course, it was around that time, you know, I started wearing eyeliner and going full Manic Street Preachers, placebo. Love, love that. Thank God for the acceptable alternative. Love that. But like as you say, that age, sort of being a young teenager, 12, 13, is extraordinarily hard anyway. Mm-hmm. But what you were dealing with added a whole other layer of stuff that you had to consider and work out and and like you're saying, you kind of just went in and just didn't want to be out and show what you were really about. How did you express what felt like your true self and your feminine side, even in that sort of the boundaries that you'd had to create for yourself? How did you express your femininity and and kind of just be you within those boundaries? I think like a lot of teenagers, I was a writhing mass of anxiety about my body full stop. I was an incredibly late bloomer. And so the strangest thing is up until I was about 16, I kind of looked like a girl anyway, because I was so small and so slight. And all through school, people were saying, lol, Dolly Dawson. That was my super kind nickname. I should have considered Dolly as a name, really. Dolly's a great name. So I was Dolly Dawson all through school. And so I kind of thought, honestly, that there was something wrong. And I did start to question 
at that time, you know, should I have been a girl? You know, am I a girl? You know, because I don't look like boys at all. And then when puberty did kick in, it was quite late. It was about 16. Now, I know a lot of trans people talk about puberty as being incredibly traumatic Mm. because your body is just completely going in the wrong direction. But I thought there was something wrong with me. And so actually when puberty kind of started, I was like, oh, phew, kind of at least my body's not broken. Mm. And at the time I had no concept that being trans was a thing. So at the time I kind of felt sort of like a weird relief that at least this thing I'd seen everybody else go through, oh, it was now happening to me. And in a strange way, I'm kind of almost quite glad that I didn't know transitioning was an option because I think puberty would have been unbearable because in the 90s, I wouldn't have been able to access treatment on the NHS and I would have just had to go through puberty, watch my body go the way it went. And I think that would have been really sad. And I know now when you speak to trans youth, you know, they are terrified of puberty because they know you know, what's going to happen to them if this mm. kicks in, kind of. And and that's why they're all so chomping at the bit to start their treatment, because they can maintain a much more feminine or masculine kind of body. Yeah, and not have to face that fear of, yeah. of turning into something that you don't feel that you are. That's an incredibly difficult thing to have to go through. Yeah, I mean, I've done, I've because I've been through it as an adult, and yeah. I, I always think that's a kind of weird privilege mm. because, you know, I had my house and my career and my friends and my family and sort of approached it in quite a mature, quite grown-up, business-like way almost. But really what my last sort of four years have been about is about undoing that puberty and kind of sort of trying to sort of fix what once went wrong, like an episode mm. of Quantum Leap. And how, for example, how has that how has that process felt to you? How has that been? Has it been cathartic, traumatic, therapeutic, a release? How's that felt? <laughs> a little bit of all of the above, I think. Mm. It's been weird. Mm. It is weird. Um, I think if you weren't like a hundred percent sure that you were doing something that was always meant to be, I don't know how it would feel because it's it's quite exhausting actually it's a big physical quite evasive is that the right word invasive evasive invasive don't I think. ask me you're the writer here yeah. um it's quite it's hardcore um <laughs> it, it really does it takes over every element of your life initially sort of like your social life and your family life and then as you initiate your medical transition it becomes well, it's basically puberty round two. So mm. you're doing it all again. So the mood swings and strops and bursting into tears, um, you know, and, and quite physical growing pains as well as your body changes. And then on top of that, you know, surgeries and all the fun that comes with recovery time and anaesthetics. And so it's, yeah, it's it's gruelling. But at the same time, and this is going to sound a bit, crystal candle incense incredibly kind of spiritually rewarding Mm. because you're finally just being yourself and you know there are days where I'm just like oh like was this the right thing to do and yes like you think about it for about a second you think of like three-year-old me knew this Mm. you know I should have just listened to her she knew yeah that intuition was there from the get-go it was just you knew you had a long road to get to where you are now which I imagine also brings a huge sense of confidence from if you think back to when you were 13 and being confused and not knowing you know all these different people having opinions and telling you different things and you having to work out your own route and what Mm -hmm. that meant to you and now you're at a place where you're just you and you feel comfortable. That confidence surge must have been huge for you. 
Yeah, I think what it's it's like, and this is something that the tone of the press gets slightly wrong, this makeover, you know, the, the narrative is kind of like, oh, you know, she started dressing like a girl. No, 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 no. She stopped dressing like a boy. Mm. It's a process of taking something off rather than putting something on. And of course, anything coded male felt incredibly heavy and uncomfortable to me. So doing everything that I, the way I live now is incredibly freeing. And so of course you feel more confident because you're not being like weighed down by all these things which felt very alien. I likened it, I think I was talking to Lorraine Kelly about it. And I said, I likened it to like being forced to dress like a pineapple every day of your life. Like how ridiculous and absurd you would feel and how wonderful you would feel when you finally got to take the pineapple costume off. Mm. To be like, thank God it's gone. Mm. Can you sort of look at your own personality and identity and go, well, these bits feel very feminine and these bits feel very masculine to me. I mean, I think we've been told our whole lives that certain attributes of ourselves are masculine and feminine. And it's really hard to know sort of which came first. Yeah. Is it that men are more aggressive or ambitious or ruthless and women are more nurturing and caring? Or is it that these are the traits that have been conditioned and praised and rewarded? So when we see a little girl cradling a baby doll she's told oh look at that she's so lovely with that baby you see a boy with a baby doll and you take it off him mm. so it's kind of you know it's peculiar yeah so it's although i would say excellent parents all around the world are giving their little boys yeah, dolls yeah. and that's wonderful and we should be rewarding that as well and whereas you know, and the reverse is true of little boys. So they're encouraged for being, oh, you know, boys will be boys and rough and tumble and, you know, encouraged towards sports and physical activity in a way that girls talk, that's not very ladylike. Mm. So it's it's hard to tell, certainly. And I think this is one of the sort of things about sort of trans women and trans men, obviously, as well. And we have slightly unique perspective yeah. in that we are aware of what we were praised and encouraged towards as kids. And... And I know that I was certainly never shamed or told not to be ambitious. I was always told, you know, that I could pretty much do whatever I wanted to do. No one ever, ever once, until weirdly until the last five years, ever asked me if I was interested in kids. Like, it was never discussed. You know, I was never asked in interviews, ever. Mm. And I wonder possibly if, as a, even as a little girl, if my sister was asked, you know, do you think you'll have babies one day? So I never factored in, you know, family. It was all about career and all about sort of success. And I don't think, you know, I was never called a ruthless bitch. Mm. Whereas I think, you know, when I was starting out as an author... I think ruthless is the wrong word, but I was certainly really driven and ambitious and I knew what I wanted and I had goals and I freed up a lot of time. You know, I went to every book launch and every award ceremony and every function and, dare I say it, networking <laughs> event going. Whereas if I'd have been 25, 26 and had two kids the way my sister did when she was 26, I don't think I would have been at all those networking events. Mm. And I think... I know some female authors who are ambitious and they get called bitches. Mm, I think that, that one is so frustrating because I'm very ambitious as well and I don't want to be labelled anything apart from someone that likes their job and works yeah. hard. And, and like you, you know, possibly for different reasons, but my parents and my family and sort of inner circle of friends and people that influence me certainly never said, oh, you can't do that because you're a girl or, or you shouldn't be thinking like this. I was always pretty much given free reign to kind of go where I'm really grateful for that because I am very ambitious naturally but I still have this sense that 
that feels like more of a masculine energy. And I, I can't even articulate why. And also, it's bizarre because naturally we might be inclined to go, well, that's, you know, very sexist. Or you're really putting down women by saying that. But that's only, again, because we've been conditioned to think that being ambitious is more important or stronger than being nurturing. Of course, yeah. Whereas for me, I think... God, it's much harder work nurturing kids than than doing the work bit. And I'm sort of trying to juggle the both. But we've also labelled them a negative and a positive, Mm. which is such a strange sort of subconscious thing that we've gone, oh, well, to be a woman, it's it's softer. It's lesser. Lesser. And it's just not, it's just sort of different. But we've got this subconscious conditioning that we always put it in a box of, of weaker or stronger. And that's such a strange, because we're going back to, I guess, physical strength rather than it being mental strength, yeah. emotional strength, like tenacity, dedication. And that's such a, a strange thing we've got as well going Oh my on. gosh, I think misogyny underpins half of the woes of society, which is anything dimly feminine is immediately considered less. Yeah. And this is how we've ended up in such a state with the kind of politicians we have. And actually, God, this is quite deep, isn't it? I mean, Margaret Thatcher is a really good example of a woman who almost overcompensated by becoming super masculine. You know, she was very male in her kind of attitude and stance and concepts of emotional literacy and nurture were very absent. And I think that's kind of where we are. And I think you see this in homophobia as well. I think when gay men and gay women are criticised, it's very often for actually defying gender, not sex. You know, I think gay guys get, you know, you run like a girl, you talk like a girl, why are you acting like a girl? And gay women get, oh, she looks like a bloke, why is she so butch? And I think this this misogyny, this kind of assumption that anything female is somehow less than, Mm. underpins a lot of issues. It really does. And I think once you start to sort of unpick it all, you really see that. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. So bearing in mind that over the years there has been progression and it certainly isn't at the point that we need it to be at, but there's progression with how women are seen in a sense of family, a sense of connecting to other people and a sense, of course, in the workplace. And there's still lots of change needed, but we are not defined by having to be mothers, housewives, nurturers. We can go out and do pretty much whatever we want. I think there's some terminology that needs to be extinguished slightly like we can have it all because I think that leads to complete exhaustion. But I think we've certainly got way more options. Bearing that in mind that we don't have to become a housewife, we don't have to be mothers. Why do you think it is so important for us to still identify with a gender culturally and to go, I'm a woman and this is what it means to me? Oh gosh, that is such a biggie. I think, first of all, that it's it's a little bit like those people say, oh, I don't see colour, I don't see race. I think actually we have to see gender because we have to acknowledge that half of the world historically and in modern times has had a struggle and that there is still 
a gap in, in lots of different ways in terms of access to healthcare, reproductive rights, political rights, economic equality, this whole conversation about Me Too, Time's Up, sexual harassment. So while there are issues that affect women more than men, I think it's really important to recognise that there is, a dare I say, it, a class difference between men and women. I think obviously, like all good intersectional feminists, I believe that women come from all different walks of life and all different backgrounds as well. And that has to be recognised. The struggles of poor women, the struggles of women of colour, the struggles of LGBT women. These are different struggles that has to be added into the equation as well. But moreover, and again, I'm going back to the witchy place again. There was something about me that knew I was a girl and... I like that and I celebrate it. I couldn't celebrate it for a really long time. You know, I went 28 years without being to celebrate who I was. Kind of did through my fandom of the Spice Girls. That was as close <laughs> as I got. You know, I was as, as much of a Spice Girl fan as you could be. Um, I was there with you on that and one. Doing my girl power bit, but not as a girl at mm. the time. And that was really frustrating. I think you've hit on something really important there, that it, celebration, and we perhaps overlook that because we want to try and rectify problems that we see and struggles that we perhaps adhere to in certain points in life and actually just talking about celebration is really important Mm. and just the positives that are there and honoring that and you know for me that feels right and for you that feels right and that's a a big reason to say I'm a woman and here Mm -hmm. I am for you and for me and any other women out there transgender women women of color race, background, whatever, to stand up and and to celebrate that. I think that's a really great thing. You've just said that. I mean, I love boys. I do. I love, I love a boy or a man. And, you know, I love my male friends. I love dating men. But, you know, if I don't have a certain amount of time in my week with my girlfriends, I would be very unhappy. Mm, That connection's important to them. Yeah, oh my gosh. And that sort of shared journey. And I think, you know, certainly trans women have infinite things in common with cis women. Last night, we were in a bar watching a load of drag queens, as you do, and somehow we just got talking about where to get the perfect bra. And that was a good hour and a half of my night last night. I think I know now. Talking about that, how important is it for you to present yourself in a certain way, to dress in a certain (laughs) way, to wear makeup? You know, this, I think, is something that all of us women think about with how we present ourselves to the world. And I will certainly think about that more so probably at work with how I want to be seen and for people to see how I'm expressing myself. But then even, you know, I'd be lying if I if I said I didn't want to wear makeup a little bit on the school run, so I looked less knackered (laughs) and a bit less old. And I think, you know, we are lucky that we can be malleable in that sense, that we can change how we look and feel with clothing and makeup. So so how important is that to you? I just think it's about choices. I just think I'm doing what I want now. And I think that's the state that I would want all women all over the world to be in, where you can just do what you want. Mm. And I say that, again, coming from a position of privilege, but... And I will say this, you know, in the early days of my transition, I made some errors in judgment. You know, I was a bit kid in a candy shop. I was like, oh my God, I can wear whatever I want now. And I wore some stuff that really didn't suit me. And I looked, I mean, I think it was the Glamour Awards in 2015 where I looked like Ronald McDonald. I mean, let's be really clear about that. I did not look good. We've all been there. I mean, not specifically Ronald, but we've all all made (laughs) We've all done the Glamour Awards (laughs) in error. Um, And it was not good. And... Now I've figured out 
again, sort of 32 years in how my face looks best. Sometimes that involves makeup, sometimes it doesn't. But broadly, as a rule of thumb, it's just, I just wear and do what makes me happy and makes me feel comfortable. I love dressing up for a big night out. You know, and I think that's that's the slight danger with Instagram, which is you're much more likely to Instagram your big nights out. So everybody thinks you always look camera ready. And that's you've got to I'm aware of that, which is why I kind of try to offset it with Instagram stories of me in bed without any makeup on, because I don't want my readers tend to be teenage girls. And so I don't want them to think you have to look yeah. like you've had an hour in Mac every morning, kind of. But for me it feels a bit like a hobby. And it is a hobby that I think is maligned because it's for girls. And mm. I think it comes back to what we've just been talking about, which is no one has ever called football frivolous or pointless. And yet if I said... Oh, I might have to my husband when he's watching it and shouting swear words at the telly. Yeah, but it's like, you know, look at the coverage mm. that football and sports getting, you know, broadsheet newspapers. And then I say, oh, I'm obsessed with this new foundation. Everybody's like, oh, you're such a girl. And it's like, well, there's nothing wrong with that. I understand it's not a hobby that everybody likes. A lot of women despise clothes and makeup and just don't want to donate any of their brain time to it. But I enjoy it. Well, it's expression, isn't it? That certainly feels like that for me as well. You know, I want to express how I'm feeling on that day. And it might be a day where you say you wear no makeup and I wear black or I'm feeling really colourful and I really go for it. And it's showing the world this is how I'm feeling today. And and we've got those options, as you Mm -hmm. say. So let's get on to something I think slightly trickier. And not for you, but I just think sort of generally to talk about being someone that loves words well both of us yeah but um you know you're an award-winning writer how do you think we tackle language around gender going forward there seems to be change in this area constantly so where do you think we should be looking to head to i think as long as you're keeping it polite and kind it almost doesn't really matter and i know having spoken to lots of really cool not trans people about especially the media's tone around trans people there's a lot of people out there who really want to be supportive but are terrified of saying the wrong thing Mm. and i'm just like oh just forget about it you know as long as you're speaking up in support of tolerance and inclusion and kindness i just think it really matters i mean i think we all know the really deeply offensive words to avoid yes and you know I, I mean, I will use it now for the purposes of illustration. There's, there has been a conversation about the term tranny. And I think that that came up from that kind of RuPaul's drag race culture, where I think people sort of got to think, oh, maybe that's an okay word. Mm. But actually, for my mind, we know that, you know, trans women, in particular, and particularly trans sex workers, and particularly trans sex workers of colours, are hugely disproportionately likely to be murdered. And in my mind... That word, the T word, is the word you hear when you get your head kicked in. Yeah. And so I'm like, I, I wouldn't use it even in a, oh, I'm reclaiming it way. I, I just wouldn't. And so I think that word is definitely to be avoided. But in terms of the broader conversation, you know, the one that upsets Piers Morgan about kind of like gender non-binary, gender queer, gender fluid, no gender, two gender, you know, it's mm. it kind of, I don't think it really massively matters You know, I have friends who identify as gender non-binary for lots of reasons. I mean, maybe they feel they don't identify as male or female. They don't connect to that kind of energy we've talked about in either way. Or for some of them, it's more of a political stance, which is, 
I feel men and women are treated differently in this society, so I am completely denouncing both of those terms. And I'm like, cool, I get both of those things. I have always felt like a girl, so that's the way I'm going to describe myself. And their decision to describe themselves as non-binary doesn't detract anything from my identity Mm. whatsoever. I understand it looks like a lot of things are changing really quickly, but I'm not sure it is. I just think there's a bit of a tabloid obsession at the moment. I think this is nothing new. I mean, I'm researching an article at the moment that looks at the contribution of trans women and trans men to society since the days of suffrage. Mm. This has been going on for hundreds and hundreds yeah. and hundreds of years. And, you know, even further back when we look at ancient cultures as well. So it's nothing really new. I, and I think conversations around trans issues shouldn't distract from any other conversations about women, women's rights. In fact, I think it can be a bit of a diversion because if we can all just get on board with the idea that trans women are women, then all of a sudden trans rights become women's rights. Yeah. And we can just talk about women's rights, fully including trans women in that. And, you know, for for me at the moment, my big thing that I think we'll be gearing up towards is this referendum in Ireland about abortion rights. And I have so many friends in Dublin. I've been very lucky. I'm a big bestseller in Ireland. So I spend a lot of time there. And, you know, that that's the fight I want to fight at the moment, actually. You know, I think it's outrageous that 11 women a week are getting a Ryanair flight over to have mm. an abortion. That's insane. So sort of conversations around vocabulary, around trans people, I think, you know, we're tying ourselves up in knots when we have real work to do in terms of women's rights and equalities. So how do we, going forward, talk to the younger generations, which that's what you do brilliantly, yeah. more than anything, is talk to that that youth and and those bright souls that are growing up in a new era. How do we talk to them about gender and men and women, feminine, masculine? I think they're better at it than us. Mm. I think they already know because they've grown up with broadband in a way that we didn't. Mm. And so they have just this unlimited access to YouTubers and Twitter and Instagram And now, you know, I felt so alone growing up. Like, I felt like surely I'm the first person to have ever felt like this. And now I wouldn't have. I would, well, A, I would have transitioned when I was about eight because I would have seen Andrea Pejic or Paris Lees or Monroe Bergdorf. I would have seen these women and be like, oh, right, yes, got it. (laughs) I understand now. Um, And so strangely, I think we should actually be listening to them, not talking to them. Um, I think they already know. They're better than us. And, you know, I spend half my life in schools. And I'll never forget, I went into City of London School for Girls in Barbican about three years ago, right kind of in the early days of my transition. I was like, good morning, girls, which was agendering them to begin with. Good morning. Right, you know, I'm going to tell you about what it is to be transgender. A transgender person is blah, blah, blah. And they were like, yeah, we know we have two trans pupils and now we have boys at this school. So it's not just a girl's school. And I was like, this is so embarrassing. But that wouldn't have happened when we were at school. Well, it of course not. Have. No, yeah. I mean, we're about the same age. We we mm. were both educated under Section 28. Mm. So at that time, teachers weren't allowed to talk about sexuality no. and gender because they would have lost no. their jobs. So mm. things are very, very different. And I think actually it's our generation older that's still adjusting because... Younger people today, they have smartphones. Mm. If there's something they don't know, they will Google it. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, and they've always had that power. They're so much further ahead of us. And that doesn't mean we shouldn't 
protect them because actually I think what we need to protect them from is the internet Con- yeah, con- yeah. conversely I think there's almost as much bad as there is good out there well, yeah. but in terms of just knowledge and conversations they're having conversations that we just wouldn't have had and you know all the letters and fan mail I get is from sort of 14, 15, 16, 17 year olds and it's not them I worry about to be honest it's the the dinosaurs the Donald Trumps of this world who haven't caught up yet how do you feel getting so many letters, emails, people talking to you about things that are very important to spend the time in a, in a very sort of pivotal age in their life? How do you feel being, it's a big responsibility mm. to be that sort of role model and voice of that generation talking about gender? Yeah, I mean, it's really, really tough. And it's something that I've sort of have written about this week because about a week and a half ago, I was on a documentary on ITV called Transformation mm-hmm. Street. Um, I agreed to take part with that for better for worse and actually in the end I think they did quite a good job it could have been so much worse and so I've had a week and a half of dozens and dozens and dozens of emails tweets messages on Instagram messages through Facebook and a lot of them are from really desperately vulnerable young people who are not getting the support they need either at home or on the NHS they're on the waiting list to be seen by gender clinics they're worried they're going to get thrown out of home if they come out as bi, if they come out as gay, if they come out as lesbian. And it's really tough because I'm not a doctor. No. And I'm not a qualified therapist. And that's why when I did write Mind Your Head, I would only do it because Dr. Olivia Hewitt agreed to do it with me. And she's a psychologist. So I, I felt comfortable in talking about mental health when there was a doctor literally sat next to me. And I can't give these people direct advice because I don't know them and I don't know their situation. And, you know, when doctors or therapists or counsellors help people, they, they have the background, they have the context. And so I feel really sort of powerless to help. But at the same time, what I can do is just be as out there as possible and do things like this. And, you know, as a, I'm a Stonewall role model. And the whole point of being a Stonewall role model is that you just go out there and succeed. Through me being a transgender woman from a super working class background who has gone on to be a best-selling author, which is quite a posh arena to move in, kind of, you know, it's, there you go, I won. You know, I didn't let being trans stop me whatsoever. And I think that's better than me sort of trying to be a counsellor and a therapist as well, because there are amazing counsellors and therapists out there, but I'm not one of them. I'm constantly sort of referring people to This Book is Gay because there's a huge long list of organisations in there that can help organisations like Stonewall, Mermaids, all these amazing people who are just doing such good work for LGBT youth. And also you're offering up the knowledge that they're not alone and that yeah. in itself is so powerful because like you say when you're growing up you felt like the only person who'd ever felt like that yeah. and now people can reach out to you and say well I feel like like how you've writ- written in your books and I and I am not the only person and that's making me feel better just knowing that yeah. it's, it's a huge deal I think that alienation has probably dissipated a bit over the years because of the internet and because there are more role models who are stepping up and being very open and honest yeah. about whatever they're do- going through in life and that's that's a huge deal I mean we we know through lots of different research that mental health statistics for LGBT kids are really like dire 45% of trans youth have tried to kill themselves not just thought about it they've tried Mm. it and so that's why I think it's so important that 
myself or Laverne Cox or Andrea Pejic or Leith Ashley, any of these trans people, we just have to be as visible as we can be to let them know there's a future. There's a future worth living for. It's out there. You know, we, we've arrived at that future. Not entirely unscarred or unbruised, but, you know, we all got here. Mm, who and is they? God. Exactly. Oh, my gosh. We've all yeah. survived our teens mm. and 20s, kind of. And that's enough for them to know that. I yeah. Think, that you're there and that you are doing such positive things and and they can look and aspire. To, and also, I think it's about being honest, isn't it? And being open, I think probably all of our generation now are way more honest and open than our parents certainly our grandparents about mm-hmm. anything going on that that feels like a struggle or feels like it's been labeled a negative and yeah. i think the biggest problem for a lot of youth out there and specifically around gender is shame yeah. and shame is such a shitty thing to have to mm-hmm. live with whether it is in regards to your mental health or your gender but i think by being open which is what you do so beautifully allows people to somewhat park their own shame because they're in it with someone else and they might not know you personally but you're in it together and that's that's a potent thing for them to to grab hold of yeah and it's like an antidote to the Mm. shame I think that's what you know that's why I'm so thrilled that there is these just incredibly positive voices coming through yours Gemma Kearney Catelyn Moran letting people know that there's different kinds of shame that teenagers receive sort of fat shaming, slut shaming. Mm. These actually, despite anything you might have heard, these are not things to be ashamed of. And that's why I love this kind of conversation. I love that we have so many voices all adding to this incredibly positive wave of sound Mm. because you just can't get enough of it out there. I agree. And at the end of the day, whatever subject you're talking about, it might be gender, it might be mental health, it might be class, background, whatever... All it is is trying to unify and it's stopping people building walls and barriers between segregations of society and going, well, you're this, you're over there and you're separate because you're this over there and you might not feel so good about yourself because you're over there. It's actually just going, we're all in this together and let's just all be accepting of each other and get on with it. And that's... You know, that's it at the end of the day, isn't it? Yeah, and that you just can't get it wrong. Yeah. Like, of all the things you know, for kids to struggle with. I don't really think their gender should be one. I just think you can't, regardless of whether you identify as a boy or a girl or neither, you just can't, how do you get it wrong? And I think that's the problem. I think we pin so much shame on kids for when they get it wrong. And you can't, you just can't, you Mm. just can't mess up. No, because you're just being you. Just being you. And Mm. I think that's a really good message for boys, girls, men, women, that you can't fuck up your gender. Find your way to exist in the most comfortable way you can. And that's going to be different for everyone. Well, look, it's been such a joy to talk to you. Yay. So interesting Thank and you. brilliant. Got as a bit imagined. heavy in places, didn't it? I love that. Margaret Thatcher and Trump <laughs> in one podcast. <laughs> who, who, would, who would have guessed? It? I know. <laughs> Thanks so much to Juno Dawson for inviting me down to Brighton and treating me to a delicious vegan chocolate cake as well. I so enjoyed spending time with Juno. Juno's brand new novel, Meat Market, is out now and of course it's getting rave reviews. It's already one of the biggest novels of the summer, reaching number one on the Amazon chart. Go check it out and go Juno. And don't forget that we'll have more super stimulating chat as the Happy Place Festival is coming to London's Chiswick House in August and Tatton Park in Manchester in September. Tickets are selling out fast, so get booking now at happyplacefestival.com. Oh, and next week, 
it just gets better and better. I'm thrilled about this one. We're going to be meeting the author of Eat, Pray, Love. It's Elizabeth Gilbert. There are emails that I respond to immediately. There are emails I respond to within a few days. And there are emails that will sit in my inbox until the fucking sun explodes because <laughs> I don't know what to do with them. <laughs> and I can't deal with them. And there are too many. And I, those emails, there were probably 150 of them in my inbox as usual that day. And I remember just deleting every single one of them. And I've now just do that. That is next week on Happy Place. Get it as soon as it drops when you subscribe. It's free and you get access to our whole back catalogue. So do it now. A massive thanks again to Juno, to my producer Matt Hill at Rethink Audio, and to you brilliant souls for listening. Bye-bye. 